Welcome to this episode of SDI Encounters, a podcast on spiritual direction and spiritual companionship. I'm Matt Whitney. Thank you for listening. Learn more about our work and the work of spiritual direction and spiritual companionship on our website, sdicompanions.org. Recently, I had the amazing opportunity to chat with author and teacher Rabbi Rami Shapiro, who has written an article for Presence Journal, the SDI quarterly publication on spiritual direction and companionship. It was meant to just be a quick 15-minute conversation that I could use to create a short video to go with the article in our online edition of Presence. But because Rabbi Rami was so generous with his time and our conversation so fascinating, we ended up going for almost an hour. We talked about spiritual companionship, when our own beliefs and worldviews get in the way of doing this work, mysticism, embracing shadow and evil within ourselves, and the necessity of our spiritual work in a rapidly changing world. So in this podcast episode, we are releasing the entirety of that conversation. Rabbi Rami is a delight to listen to, and I hope you enjoy it. Just a reminder, Presence Journal is the flagship publication of SDI. It comes out four times a year and is an international journal on spiritual direction and companionship. Presence Journal is available in print and on the web to SDI members. We invite you to be a member of SDI. Membership is available to everybody. You do not need to be a spiritual director or companion to be a member. Come check us out on the web, sdicompanions.org. So I'm here with Rabbi Rami Shapiro. What an honor. Thank you for your time today. Well, this is my honor as well, and I'm happy to share whatever time we've got. Yeah, well, so you have graciously written an article for us for Presence Journal, and it's it's delightful in many ways. The, the first way is, is just that it's, it's almost, I want to say, subversive (laughs) (laughs) okay you're gonna have to define that for me why it's subversive well it invites you in in a very practical way writing a handbook yeah the invitation is to really just articulate how you offer spiritual companionship and you know kind of defining the container such that somebody would want to work for you or work with yeah. in a spiritual companionship relationship, but yeah. I, I think it's really, yeah, start there. Start there. I mean, it, I mean, that, that was the impetus for the article. I think it's important for the, the spiritual, you know, for the director, I know we try to move away from that term, but companion can be both of us. So, but from the director's point of view, the spiritual director's point of view, I think it's important that she have a clear sense of goals, mission, method so that there's something for her to follow or him right and then to have something to offer to the prospective companion so that they know where you're coming from and to see well this isn't you know this is too much for me or this is not exactly what i'm looking for rather than leave it just open and let it unfold now some people i'm sure would rather just let it unfold and that's a different methodology but for me personally I 
prefer having a map that I find useful and effective and saying to someone, well, if you are going to you know, take this journey with me, then here's how, you know, I travel. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to this term map because the article is called wandering the pathless land. Yeah. Map is uh, the wrong. Not quite wrong. sure how to map that. And I want to talk right. about that. That's right. fine. Right. But this is, and that's partly why I feel like this is a, a subversive invitation because it's, but just, uh, I'm going to stay with the, the practicality of it for a moment. So, you know, articulating the relationship and the container of spiritual companionship. And just as a, a technical question, do you understand the handbook to be something specific? Like, or can it just be, is it really just a, an excuse? I don't want to say excuse, but a, a vehicle for articulating one's practice. So it could be a website or it could just be an elevator pitch. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure about elevator pitch because that's like a 30 second thing. Yeah. But no, it doesn't have to be a handbook that is printed and you hand it to the person. I mean, that, that's not necessary. It could be a website. It, it you know, could be recordings that you've done, video that people can watch where you're talking about how you understand spiritual companioning, how you practice it, what differences it make, what are you looking for in a companion, what you're offering a companion. I mean, all those, those are issues that I think a spiritual director should have worked out in their mind. Otherwise, you're really just making it up as you go along. And while you have to be flexible, there should be some grounding that you say, well, this is, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I think this is about. So but it could take a variety of forms. I'm I'm a writer, so I like writing things out. Yeah, and and that's what's joyful about reading the article is is kind of following your your writing process and your train of thought. So you go from inviting people into articulating, defining their practice into what you call my baggage, and. The baggage is really just worldview, for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's what I had in mind, but also biases, also limitations. Yeah. If someone came to me and wanted to work on their on deepening their walk with God, let's say in a Christian context, I can't really do that. I mean, even though I've studied lots of different things, and I even if I tried the Christian context, the phrase itself is so broad, I would lead them down the path of the non-dual Christian mystic and let's read those things. But that may not be what the person wants. So I, I have to know my limitations. Mm. That's one part of the baggage. The other is I have to know my prejudices and my biases. If I'm going to hear, if I hear someone speak about God in decidedly dualistic terms, that just triggers me. And I know that. So I don't, I would never say to a person, well, you're wrong. I would simply say, you're wrong. <laughs> right? I, mean, I can't get, I can't get around my own prejudice, my own experience that, you know, whatever you want to call the, the, the absolute, it's a non-dual reality of which we are all a part. If you're coming from a very dualistic place where you are a part from, apart from God, rather than a part of God, well, you've pushed all my buttons and now I'm not companioning you. I'm directing you toward a non-dual understanding. And that's not what spiritual companioning is about. I don't think so. 
I either have to be able to put my baggage down or, and I think the second is more helpful to the companion, even if I put it down, it's still, I'm still tethered to it. So even if I'm being less overt, it's still subtly influencing everything. And if if I don't see my mission as converting you to my method, to my understanding, which is not what spiritual companioning is about, then I think the best thing for me to do would be to say, you know, you need someone who can resonate with your worldview and your experience. And I'm not that person because the language triggers me that I mean, I'm just not that person. But I have to be aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. You're very upfront with that. I think, you know, as I listen to you, I'm like, oh, can't you just sort of show up as a as a non-dual spiritual companion for somebody who wants, thinks or sees themselves on a very specific track? And- you know, theoretically, the answer would be yes. Me personally, probably not. <laughs> so I, I, it's just my limitation. I mean, if you're really non-dualistic, then you have room for the dual, right? I mean, so so I understand that on the one hand, God is the formless absolute of which all being is an expression, a manifesting of, of you know, God manifests in, with, and as everything. At the same time, I have personal experiences of, I don't know, I guess maybe like in Hinduism, an Ishwara, of my personal avatar of the divine. So sometimes I'm in that state of just being present in, with, and as the divine without form. But sometimes I feel myself addressed by the divine in form. And and for me, that form is the divine mother. So that there's a logical inconsistency there. The way you get around it in non-dualism is to simply say, well, if it's non-dual, it's not opposed to either, you know, it's not oneness or two-ness. It's a greater thing that allows space for both. So I should be able to do that. But I know myself. I've been doing this a long time and I balk at it. If you want to say, yeah, the divine is this non-dual dynamic creative force, which I experience through the icon of Jesus or Krishna or Mary or, you know, Chachma, Lady Wisdom, I mean, Sophia, then I can go, okay, I'm on the same page. But if you don't have the non-dual perspective and you're really looking for an intimate relationship with Christ and only Christ, and you don't want Krishna barging in, then then it's just a limit that it's just a, you're asking something of me that I can't give with any kind of sincerity and authenticity, and you would be better served by a different person. Yeah. Yeah. Rabbi Rami Shapiro is an award-winning teacher and author of over 36 books on religion and spirituality, a rabbinic chaplain with the U.S. Air Force for three years, a congregational rabbi for 20, and a professor of religious studies for 10 years. Rabbi Rami currently co-directs the One River Foundation, a 501c3 educational institution devoted to perennial wisdom. Rami is also a contributing editor at Spirituality and Health magazine, 
where he writes the Roadside Assistance for the Spiritual Traveler column and hosts the magazine's bi-weekly podcast, Spirituality and Health with Rabbi Rami. Learn more about Rabbi Rami's work at www.rabbirami.com. Okay, so I, I want to riff on that a little bit, and this is just out of my own personal curiosity and wrapping my head around, you know, as you're talking about, you know, these sort of forms through which one can access the divine, the icon of Christ or the divine mother. And the, the essence of my question is, can we, is it possible to couch non-dual contemplation in dualistic language for some, like if somebody is like, I'm, I'm following the way of Christ and yet like following the way of Christ leads one into this, this pathless land, this place of unknowing, you know, this, this. Right. If if that's, that, that's absolutely doable. I mean, that's the way of the Christian mystic, or I'm following the path of Krishna till I realize that all reality is, you know, is Krishna or the way of Kali or Brahman, where, where I realize that everything is this divine, but I start from a specific and then I end up with the non-dual. I mean, that's, that's, there's no problem there. I don't think either there's no problem with, for me with that thinking. And I don't think there's any problem with that thinking in general. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So as long as I guess you're, you're bringing that up front and, and saying, this is how I understand or don't understand this way of being just so, you know, yeah, allow yeah. someone to make I, their I own. I think the, the companion should know their companions, you know, use director because it makes it more clear what I'm talking about. The directee should know the director's bias and either work with it, account for it, make allowances for it, or say, oh no, that's that's too much. I mean, I, lots of times I run into people who are really troubled by the whole non-dual understanding of reality. They want their God to be the God and there's no room for anything else. They can't, I, I don't it's easy to, to just point to examples from Christianity because that's you know, the, the dominant form of religion where I live, but it doesn't have to be that. But, but they want Jesus as the one and only son of the one and only God who is the one, you know, who is the way, the truth and the life, and there's no other way to get to the divine except through Christ. So you lost me. You know, if you want to say, if you want to explore the I am nature of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that will take you directly to the non-dual, which is what I think Jesus is, is, has experienced and has, is in, or has or is embodying. And that's what he means. I mean, who knows if he ever said these things, but that's what John is hinting at when John has Jesus say all these various I am statements. It's not I am the egoic Jesus. It's the I am the Ehiyah from Exodus, which is how God refers to God's own being as the eyeing of the universe. So you can you can get to the eyeing through Jesus, through Krishna, through Kali, you know, through whomever. But you have to be comfortable with that or or cognizant of that's the way I'm going to go if we're going to have a relationship. I I know that sometimes the the idea of a spiritual companion or the director is you're just supposed to hold the space and let whatever happen 
you know, whatever is going to happen, it's going to happen. And you're there to hold, to, to create a safe space. And I think that's true. A safe space is true. But I personally, because I'm so committed to my theology and so convicted in, in, what, in what I've experienced, I personally know that I would interfere with your experience by trying to point you in the direction of the non-dual. And that's probably not kosher. Yeah. And I think... Yeah, the, the idea of holding a safe space, even that word safe is, is kind of double-edged. It's it's really like the safety to bring your doubts and ask questions that are dangerous. You know, for for a lot of people who who come to spiritual companionship, it's uh, they're they're usually they're wanting to grow closer to God or to the, their divine image that they follow, and yet it leads them away from ends up leading them away from the religion of their of their upbringing or it can right yeah i mean i was once involved in a discussion one of the seminaries one of the rabbinical seminaries was interested just many years ago about adding a, a spiritual directors that's what it was called then a spiritual directors track to their rabbinic training and they brought together a really interesting group of people who all had interest in spiritual direction and to discuss, is this a good idea or a bad idea? And everybody except me said it was a good idea. And I was the only holdout. And of course, my position didn't, didn't hold sway. But my, my criticism, my concern was that if someone goes to a rabbi for spiritual direction and clearly is moving in the way of Russian Orthodox sophiology, you know, wisdom mysticism through Mary. The rabbi is not going to say, oh, you know, you should go and check out the Russian Orthodox Church. The rabbi is going to say, you know, let's work within the Jewish frame, because the rabbi has a commitment to maintaining a specific framework and to helping a person find meaning in God or whatever within that framework. A spiritual director, it seems to me, though I have my limits, a spiritual director should be able to say this, what you're yearning for seems to be articulated most clearly in X. Let's explore X. Let's look at practices from the sociology tradition. Let's look at texts. Let's look at, I mean, whatever people, you know, however you run your spiritual companioning practice, but you wouldn't be afraid to let the person go there because you don't, you're not defending a tradition a rabbinic spiritual director, and maybe I'm wrong in this, I mean, it's certainly possible, but my imagination, in, in my imagination, a rabbinic spiritual director is trying is more like a pastoral counselor, is trying to deepen your, your understanding of Judaism and finding meaning in Judaism and not sending you off to be a Hindu or Buddhist, a Catholic or a Muslim. So that, that's the limitation of clergy acting as clergy being spiritual directors. Now, there are lots of great clergy people who are spiritual directors who've just matured beyond the limitations I'm talking about. But in this one example that I'm giving from the rabbinic side, the idea was for a rabbi whose mission, obligation is within a Jewish frame to be able to send someone outside that frame. I thought that was problematic for the rabbi and for the companion. Yeah. So speaking of terms, because you, I, I feel like you do a lovely job 
sort of articulating the difference between someone who is offering pastoral counseling, which is somebody who is guiding you in the tradition of their vocation, upbringing, et cetera, you know, versus a spiritual director or companion, you know, who is inviting questions and inviting you to explore questions. And I see you even in this interview, you know, vacillating between the term director and companion. And I, and I actually want to ask you about that. How do you, I think, I think you lean towards spiritual companion as a, as a term that feels more suiting, but can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, the term spiritual director sort of drilled into my head. So it comes up the, the difference as I see it between companion and a director is a director has this, because the name itself is directing you. You're the directee, they're the director. So there's a hierarchy there, there's a division there. And I'm relying on my director to direct me. That's not how I see the process working. Companion is someone who's just walking with me on this, on this journey. And I like spiritual friend is another way of, of putting it, where we have, we become friends in that we can share intimate truths about our experience and our understanding of the world, even if they differ. And we can allow those to move us beyond them, you know, just, just through the, the hopefully loving friction between two different, you know, two different people. So that, I mean, if, if I'm, if I'm having a, if my companion is a mirror of me, then neither one of us is going to get anything out of it. So there has to be some friction. There has to be two, it's two unique manifestings of the divine coming together in some kind of meeting. So out of that friction can come growth for both of us. But the director idea, in, in a sense, the director doesn't grow. The director knows where you got to go. So the, the director is stuck. I mean, that was the, the wrong choice of metaphor in the beginning, the director has the map, companion has a compass. You know, when I was thinking map, I was thinking of format, you know, this is how I do what I do. But really spiritual companioning, or, or let's go back one, spiritual direction is all about following a map. Spiritual companioning is about having a compass. We want that, and the compass is pointing true north, true north is, you know, a deeper and deeper experience of the divine manifesting as all reality. But there's, like I said in the article, there's no path. It's not like we're going to go from, you know, walk to the big oak, take a right turn, go 20 paces, take a left. I mean, it's, it's just not, it's not done that way. But we can't, so you can't get lost if there's no path. As long as you have a compass saying, okay, this way, this is the direction we want to go, the direction of divine awakening. But the steps are going to be different and, and you know, the detours are, uh, are, uh, detours are going to be different but we're always moving in that, in that direction. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, yes, it does it. And it totally does. Right. I mean, it's, it's the paradox of the pathless land. It's, yeah. Well, I love, I mean, that's Krishnamurti. You know, truth is a pathless land. And I don't know what he had in mind when he said that, but for me, it's pathless because there's nowhere to go. Truth is already present. The divine is already here. If you think you have to go somewhere to find it, you're already lost yeah so so th there is a oh i don't know it's maybe misleading but maybe just subversive nature to all the languaging around this because you're gonna 
wherever you go, you're going to end up where you started because God is everything and everywhere. So if you're looking to awaken to the divine, you're, you're it already. So it, it's not a matter of getting something you don't have or going somewhere you haven't been. It's a matter of awakening to what's happening at the moment. In that sense, it feels like the wandering that we do on our spiritual journey is it's a necessary wandering. And yet it's, it's a sort of fruitless wandering. I mean, it bears fruit ultimately because you're, you're straining, you're trying to strain beyond yourself. I mean, and, and I'm, I guess I'm just speaking from my own personal experience. You know, you're seeking what is beyond. There's like a longing in you to connect to something bigger and broader and deeper than, than what is just, you know, sort of present on the surface. And yet sure. that I mean, journey brings you back to. Yeah, the, right, right. The, the journey always brings you back to the present. I mean, I, I study religion. You can see on the wall behind me symbols from from variety of different religions that I've been involved with and continue to have great respect, love for, and engagement with. And yet, I, I, all of them are leading me to, to the extent that they're saying, quick, over here, check this out, Nick, now go over here. You know, they're leading me wherever they're leading me. To the extent they do that, they're actually distracting me from being present. So ultimately, I study all these different things from the non-dual perspective. And my understanding is that they are all simply, you know, attracting my attention and then saying, hey, stupid. <laughs> you know, just wake up now this is it you know there's there's nothing but god you know la ilaha illallah there's nothing but god or in hebrew ain't od milvado there's nothing other than god so you know just get it already but for me it takes a lot of wandering around in order to realize there was nowhere to go i mean that's maybe that's human nature but it certainly is mine yeah i think it is human nature and Again, this paradox of, you know, the compass pointing to true north, which should really be like an arrow that just right. points right back to you. <laughs> right, right. You ever, I, I'm a big fan, fan of Douglas Harding and his work on having no head. And the idea is uh, you can see everything around you. You can see your body up to the point of, of about here. And you can't see your head. You've never actually seen your face, only in reflection or photograph, but you've never seen, I've never seen my face the way you're seeing my face directly. And so in his metaphor, because that's what it is, it's the part you can't say, can't see, that's the divine looking at all these things. And so when he has this pointing exercise where you don't point to this and that and this, you, you point to yourself. And, you know, it's tatvam asi, thou art that, you're it. You cool. just can't see it. So there's a lot of clever ways, and Douglas Harding has a plethora of them, of, of trying to overcome what, what Einstein called the optical delusion of separateness, where it just looks like everything is other, but in fact, everything is one. And if I'm going to find the divine... I mean, this is one place to look, but you're another place to look. So it's not, I, I can't make my fingers go in, yeah. in 180 degrees, but you know, like, like that, I guess, right? Mm. So that, you know, it would point to everything. But mystics always take you there. 
if practice wise, you know, the practices that mystics engage in always take you there. And I define mystic as someone who is not satisfied with a secondhand understanding of, of the divine who wants to awake in with and as that. So I, I would hope that a spiritual companion or a spiritual director has, you know, I used map, that was a mistake. Toolbox is probably another mistake, but let's just go with it. Who has in her toolbox a variety of, of ways of helping people be present. Yeah. And I'm okay with the term map because I, I, I know what you're getting at. It's just let's talk about this. Share your story as a spiritual companion. You know, what does it look like for you? And, and giving, you know, giving the spiritual director or companion an opportunity to express that. And then using that as a vehicle to invite people in to that space so that they themselves can begin to discern where, where they're at, even as they wander the pathless land. And just the... I don't know, the conceptual or aesthetic challenge of, of making a map that charts the pathless land is intriguing to me. Yeah, right. It's an interesting paradox. I, I think another way of talking about what you're just saying, I think, is that the director slash companion has to be naked to the to their companion because you're inviting that nakedness from the companion. You have to model it yourself that I'm not hiding anything. I don't have an ulterior motive. And so you you put your cards on the table and then there's a, I like the word naked at the moment anyway, because it also implies to me vulnerability. A director, the title itself seems to me, I'm, I'm not vulnerable. I'm the master here, you know, and you can ask me questions, but you can't question my answers. And that's not what spiritual direction or spiritual companioning is about. So there has to be this, this, maybe the word radical isn't, is unnecessary, but a radical vulnerability on the part of the director slash companion, which would invite the same kind of vulnerability on the part of their companion. I I could keep talking to you all day about this. Did you have, did you glean any new insight in any way in in writing this article, or were reminded of something you know deeper that you knew, but sort of brought to the forefront? Well, you know, what the article is about what I, I mean, I, I don't really do spiritual companioning at the moment. I, there's all kinds of personal things going on in my life that makes doing that difficult. And I don't like doing it over Zoom. So that's a problem. But so I was writing about the way I've done it and the way I would do it if I start doing it again. But one of the things that I was reminded of as I was just putting it all together, was the power of what I what's called in Judaism the kvittle, the little letter, the little note, where the, the companion would write down if she's coming to you, if they're coming to you, they would write down their big question for that week or that month or whoever off of that meeting. And then part of what you do together is to find the question behind the question. But the act of writing, and again, I have that writer's bias, the act of writing it down beforehand, thinking about this is what I'm, this is what's happening, this is what I want, and having to put it in a sentence and not a paragraph, and certainly not a chapter, is, is a, you know, it's a, it's a very, I think, a very powerful 
exercise for getting to the core of what you think you're after. Then the, when you bring that to the companion, you can dis, you, you, you discuss the question, but eventually you burn the question because you really want to get beyond, there was something behind the question that not, neither of us know. And let's get to that, what's behind by going through the question that's offered and then we'll just get the question out of the way. And I, and I burn it just so that it's really no longer there to distract us. That, that's a, I don't know if it's unique to Judaism. I'm not 100% sure. I don't want to make a claim that I can't back up, but I think it's unique to Hasidic Jewish practice where you'd go and you'd write a little message to the Rebbe and that's what the, you know, the Rebbe would read that and use that in your, in your spiritual companioning session with the Rebbe. I'm not a Rebbe, so I don't have to get hung up in all that, that baggage, but that practice is really quite, quite helpful. I mean, it's like Twitter. Before, before Twitter went to 240 characters, you know, or whatever it is, 280, when it was 140 characters, Twitter was more exciting because it really forces you to say, okay, what is the point? So this is the same thing. You got to, you know, a sense, what is the issue in a sentence? And just working that through, even though in a sense it's going to be reductive, it makes you think of everything else. And then you get it into a sentence and then you, you're, you know, with your companion, you get through that sentence, get rid of the sentence and then see what is lying behind or beneath the whole thing. Hmm. So that, it just reminded me of the power of that practice. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I feel like a, there's a ritual sense of letting go of the question yeah. too. Yeah. And then re-articulate, you know, where am I now? It's almost like right. you're making the map and you're burning the map as you go, you know? Yeah, right. I'm going to throw it away. Like, now it's the line. Right, Not right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Well, I see you as a, whether you, I was going to ask, like, how do you have time to, like, meet one-on-one -on -one with people for spiritual companionship? But yeah, I don't have the privacy at the moment, and I, and, and my, my health is sort of iffy, so it's, I'm never sure if I'm able to, to do things, but most of my time is taken up with writing. Yeah. So. Well, and I see your writing work as offering spiritual companionship because you're inviting people into these same questions and oh, well. challenging people. It, it's been that way for me. I mean, I read Holy Rascals when I came out several years ago and Somewhere towards the end of the book, you're like, okay, you want to meet God? Here's how to do it. And you get to this page where it says, right. it's you. And I was like, oh. I threw the book aside. I was like, come on. What do I yeah, do with that? that? Was, I, don't, I don't know if you, if you read this when you were a kid, but my son, when he was little, decades ago, was obsessed with this book called, it was a Sesame Street book called, There's a Monster at the End of This Book. And it's all about oh. Grover. And each page, Grover's saying, don't turn the page, don't turn the yeah. page, there's a monster. <laughs> and then in the end, the monster is, 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 I don't know if the monster is, I think the monster is you, monster is Grover. I, I'm not exactly sure how it ends, but it ends in a, in a fun way. But I took that and turned it into, so where's God? And then, you know, don't turn the page. And then I just went through all the horrible things that gods do in the various traditions until you realize it's, it's you, that you have both the, the light and the dark of the divine. You know, you, if, if you are a manifesting of God, you are a manifesting not only of the light, but also of the shadow. And you have to do that shadow work. Mm -hmm. Well, that I've, I've chewed on that ever since and continues <laughs> to inform my pathless land. So 
yes, your your work is spiritual companionship for many. Ah, well, thank you for that. Yeah, grateful for it. Is there anything else you would like to share in regards to this conversation? Anything? I would like to bring up one other point if we have a couple of minutes. Yeah. And that is, and I could be completely wrong about this, but my sense is that spiritual companioning, training to be a spiritual companion, doing that work in the world is absolutely essential to the, the evolution of the human spirit. That I think religion has gone as far as it can go. And that's really a <laughs> outrageous statement. But religion's gone as far as it can go. It can help you, you know, regardless of the religion you're in, it can help you be the best representative of that religion. But it can't go beyond itself because that's not what religions are about. Whereas spiritual direction can take you, you know, can, every time we get a map, like you said, we could burn it and we just keep moving. And I think that the work that a spiritual director does, not that the spiritual director companion isn't steeped in religious wisdom, spiritual wisdom, isn't knowledgeable about different practices, but isn't necessarily, and I would hope isn't, uh, attached to them, to any of them, to such an extent that they'll, they're going to hit that wall and they can't go beyond it that a true spiritual companion relationship is this wandering in the path of land and discovering the divine everywhere. And that, I think, is the hunger that many people have. And that is the desperate need of the 21st century. And I don't think you're going to find it in most priests, rabbis, pastors, imams, swamis, roshis, I, I don't think that's their job. Not, don't mean to denigrate those positions in that work, but that's not their job. The job that is that the spiritual director does is the job that really is, is desperately needed. So, you know, I'm just excited to, to promote and in whatever way I do, to support the whole process of spiritual companioning. I can't think of anything in the world of religion slash spirituality that's more important than having people who are trained to be spiritual companions out in the world doing this incredibly important work. Thank you so much. And I mean, thank you for your advocacy and for your holding of the spiritual companion space for for those who are doing it vocationally, doing it just because that's who they are, just being being servants and helpers in the world. Yeah. And just as an aside, this makes me think of you're familiar with divine evolution, that like as people are awakening to this true sense of the I am, just to tie it back to our earlier conversation, the kingdom of heaven or what have you is in you and available to you now that as as spiritual companions are are helping people sort of awaken to this truth that there is a, a possibility of a new age, like a new enlightenment, a new... Yeah, I, I think that we're on in the early stages of what's called the second axial age, meaning that, that human consciousness is making this turn beyond the silos of, of organized religion to something greater, something rooted in the mystic awake, awakening. But it comes out 
or it comes at the end of a very long dark night. And that's, I mean, if you look around and you look at the mass shootings and you look at what's going on in Ukraine and, and so many other countries around the world, you look at the assault on democracy and liberalism in the United States and Hungary and Turkey and India, in, in, in so many countries, when you see all this stuff happening, you can say, well, come on, there's no new age. We're not evolving, we're devolving. But I think what's happening is the, the shadow is manifesting and we have to work with that shadow energy and not, I mean, there's some religions that say evil's not real. Evil's the absence of good, which is just a solipsism. It's God is only good. And so evil doesn't count as opposed to saying, no, look, evil is, is part of the universe. It's one of the dynamic forces in the universe. It can either be used, you know, to, to clear away the, the false, like Kali, you know, or it can be used to destroy the good. And, and it's up to us how it's being used. But if we don't face it, if we don't face our own evil, I mean, I'm probably way over time, but really quickly, there's this wonderful passage in Leviticus, chapter 19, 18. Everyone knows that it. it's, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. In the Hebrew version, there's no vowels you, you learn how to vowelize it but there's in the printed text there's no vowels so you can insert other vowels and in the 1800s rabbi nachman of braslov had this wonderful commentary on you shall love your neighbor as yourself so the hafta is and you shall love Echa is your neighbor kamocha is yourself he says because there's no vowel printed in the text, you could read it ve'ahavta, and you shall love ra'echa, your evil, kumocha, as yourself. That you can't really love your neighbor if you don't love your dark side, because if you don't take ownership of your shadow, you're going to project it onto your neighbor, and you can't love that person, wow. right? You've made yourself perfect and good and holy and loving and everything you don't like about yourself, you're now just reading into the other person. But to love your own evil, to embrace it, to deal with it, to transform it, some kind of spiritual alchemy where yeah. it still has that, 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 I guess, id energy, but it can be channeled in, in holy ways. That's that's the possibility of this moment. Now, will we meet it as a species? I'm doubtful, but more and more of us will. And eventually, I'm going to say, who knows, we'll reach a tipping point where we do move from this dark night of civilization, the dark night of the soul, into some kind of new, new age that the mystics have modeled for us in many cases, but which we as a species have not yet embodied. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pessimistic on the short term and optimistic on the long term. Yeah, it's like, ultimately, that's, and I don't want to say that's where we have to go, because I started defining the path, but the, the sense that we have to deal with our shadow, either we choose to do it, or the, our shadow is just going to destroy us, you know, and yeah. we'll face it that way. Right. Um, and, you, and you can see that happening in individuals and in countries and in communities and in religions. Just open the newspaper, you know, read the, read what's going on in the world. And you see that so many of us are captured by the shadow and we don't know what to do with that. We, we don't know how to get out of that. Mm -hmm. Is that the crux now is, I mean, facing these times and to tie together, you know, what we read in the news, which is awful, 
and, or are just experiencing in our in our lives. And the work of spiritual companionship is is learning to love the evil within us. Yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it. That's the invitation. Yeah, not to deny it, not to overplay it, but but not to not to pretend it's not there, and and certainly not to blame it on, you know. I mean, just yesterday they they were blaming the last shooting in Texas on mental the mentally ill, which is an absurd thing to do, or on the doors. Oh, if the doors were only you know hardened more, this never would have happened. And, and you know, you can also say, well, the problem is the guns and the and the the ability of an eighteen year old to just walk into the same store twice a couple of days apart and buy two you know assault rifles. Those are all real issues, but there's a deeper illness, I guess you'd say, a, a deeper shadow work that's going on that is just allowing this or or capturing a, an 18-year-old kid like that and getting him to do that. I, I don't want to say there's a devil, you know, like Satan is out there trying to do all these things. I don't want to personify it, but there is an energy within everybody, this shadow energy that we have got to address and, and we don't. And that is part of the work of a spiritual companion. Yeah. I'm just now wrestling internally. How do I begin to do that? Like yeah, if somebody's like a good just despairing, you know, <laughs> for the world, it's like you want to go and be active and do some action in the world and, you know, call your senators and protest and what have you. But to like yeah, do that I wouldn't work. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't not do any of those things. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things you have to do while you're doing those things is not demonize people who are on the other side, right. because that's just a projection again. But no, there's a lot those things are, are all important. But do they get to the root problem? And I, I don't think so. Are spiritual directors, spiritual companions trained to deal with the shadow side? I, I don't know. I mean, my rabbinic training never talked about it. You know, so I wasn't trained as a rabbi to deal with the shadow side of the people that would come to me. Maybe that's different now. I mean, I was trained in the 70s. So maybe that's that's different. But anyone who's working in, I would say, anyone who's working in the religious world or in the spiritual world needs to get additional training from the psychological world, in a sense, to deal with the shadow side and to make that, find a way to, to bridge the, the psycho psychological with the spiritual in order to because it's not they're not really separate it's psycho spiritual in order to to be able to deal with these deeper issues i mean one of my fears is that whether we're talking religion or we're talking spirituality it's very superficial and it's just let's feel good you know or you know god will take care of everything and i that's just not helpful to me personally you know when we were talking about i was going to tweet this but it was so nasty that i didn't but i was going to like have a tweet from god saying you know enough with your your thoughts and prayers if i really cared about you i would have made these things impossible from the beginning you know, so don't pray to me you know do, do something about it yeah but you know doing something it's not as easy as guess what we're going to pass a bill not opposed to that, right? But that's not the end all. It, it, there's something broken in you know, the human psyche 
and this is where I know we're way over time and everything, but this is where <laughs> no, Christianity. This is, this is where Christianity is so some aspects are so helpful because Christianity helps you deal with the broken human being. Christianity helps you deal with the crucifixion of the individual, but also the crucifixion of the civilization. I think we're, you know, you could talk about the dark night of, of the soul or the dark night of human civilization. You can also see our time as the crucifixion of, of you know, humanity. And it's a necessary thing that we have to go through. One of the great teachings, I think, that comes from the gospel according to John is when John has, you know, Jesus is on the cross. Well, actually, they all, they all say this, but in, in Mark's gospel, which is the oldest gospel, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is hanging on the cross and he only says one thing. In John, he says multiple things. But in Mark, he only says one thing. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's this beautiful poetic mythopoetic moment of absolute despair it's hitting rock bottom on steroids if you like 12-step terminology where you know jesus jesus doesn't say god why have you forsaken this my god the god i believed in the god i thought was going to get me through this the god that is going to make everything okay that god has forsaken me i'm absolutely stripped of all of my spiritual baggage and I think this is true for Jesus, and this is true for us if, when we go through this, you're absolutely stripped of all of your spiritual certainty, and then you die without it. But then what happens? You're resurrected. You go through that death, through a stripping away of everything you thought you knew about everything, and you end up absolutely naked, absolutely vulnerable, and then absolutely resurrected into a new body and a new consciousness. And it's the consciousness of, of the I am. And you realize you have an immense power to make holiness, to make for holiness in the world, or immense power to see the holiness in the world. I mean, there's different ways of articulating it. But the Christian mythos, and I don't mean that in a negative term, myth is the most powerful way that human beings communicate deep truth. In the Christian mythos, you get this powerful crucifixion and resurrection that other religions may have it to one extent or another. Jesus is not the only dying and resurrected God, but I think it has it in such a powerful way, especially in the 20, 21st century, because it's that, you know, we don't have much to do with Osiris anymore. So, so you go through the Christian method, but message, but there's so much power in that myth that offers both, it explains the harrowing that's coming and, or that we're in, and the resurrection that's possible if we allow ourselves to be stripped naked of all the nonsense. I mean, Kali is trying to do the same thing. She cuts away all the, all the nonsense. Shiva cuts away all the nonsense. So I don't know, maybe I'm just babbling, but this, this is a very dark and dangerous time that holds out tremendous promise if we go into this with that kind of spiritual nakedness. Yeah. I mean, what I hear in that, in the way you describe it is that despair and death is an invitation. Yeah, right. An invitation to the yeah. resurrection. <laughs> and it's one that we are continually invited to. I don't think, I'm not sure that it's a one-time dying. No, right. It's, it's constant. I mean, I mean, the Sufis have a saying, die before you die that you have to go through these spiritual deaths. Don't wait till you're 
I mean, I, I personally have this theology that says, you know, you get you awaken at your deathbed, but don't wait, you know, die before you die, experience it now. And, and most of us go through a near death. I don't mean in the technical term of near death experience, but we go, we get close to the crucifixion, but then we, we say, you know, wait, 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 get, get me off of this. You know, we talk ourselves down from the cross. We don't want to actually do the dying. We cling to something so that we never have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't want that forsakenness. And, and that's understandable, but unfortunate because it's, it's being stripped of all of that, that leads you to the rebirth into something new. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've experienced, but it seems like, you know, the die before you die, that is continually happening. The death is always a little bit harder than the previous one. A little bit darker, yeah. a little bit more despairing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're going deeper. Yeah. So you're being stripped of something. I mean, you get, oh, I can give this up. I can give this up. But as it gets more deep, you go, wait, 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 not that. You can't take that from me. I got to hold on. And it's taken, you know, from your hands and you're, you're forced to go even deeper. I mean, the, the grace of 12 step, you know, I'm very interested in 12 step stuff, but the grace of 12 step is hitting rock bottom. It's not sobriety. It's hitting rock bottom. Sobriety and rock bottom, I think are flip sides of the same coin. Wow. And if you, if you don't, hit rock bottom. And it's like you said, I think in one of my books on it, one of my teachers said it was like falling down a winding staircase. You keep hitting landings, you know, you, you fall and then, oh, you hit a landing. Oh, okay. I made it. I was fine. And then there's bam, 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 more, more stairs that you're falling down and you hit another landing. You think, oh, that now it's done. It's never done. It's a continuous ripening, but it, it it's, you know, it's like, and I'm not going to quote this right, but where Jesus talks about, you know, having to you have to bury the seed into the earth in, in order for it to, to sprout you have to go very deep down into the dark fertile soil of not knowing Ooh. if this thing we're talking about is is going to take root and, and sprout yeah you're speaking to something that reverend seifu my boss speaks to a lot which is the this notion of composting you know yeah this is the shadow work you know that it is dark but it's, it's fertile and there's you know, things are being digested and decomposed, which then yeah. gives new life to something. I mean, you can see this in the, in the 10 Zen ox herding paintings, pictures, mm -hmm. where, you know, it's this pretty superficial seeking, and then you get to the point where you're gone. Yeah. I think that's, that's number eight. And then number nine, yes. nature comes back. And then number 10, you come back transformed. Yeah, you're just the holy fool, right? The holy fool, that, that's, what, that's what we're talking about. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us share and spread the word about the life-giving practice of spiritual companionship, you can help us out by subscribing to this podcast through your favorite app. You could give us a like or even write us a review. Thank you for listening. This is Matt Whitney with Spiritual Directors International. Thanks again for listening. Your time and your presence here are deeply appreciated. If you liked this show and would like us to continue making them, please do subscribe now while it's fresh on your mind. Also, we would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send in your comments and suggestions to the email address podcast at sdiworld.org. 
SDI is the home of spiritual companionship. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org.